And you're welcome to the RT Rugby Podcast as the Women's Six Nations comes to an end. The Rainbow Cup kicks off to absolutely no fanfare whatsoever. And we build up to Leinster against La Rochelle in the Heineken Cup semi-final this weekend. Delighted to say Donald Lennon, Bernard Jackman and Wes Lydia with me as always. Um, look, a quick review from last weekend. Um, first of all, if you don't mind, I was on the Planet Rugby website earlier, Donald Lennon, and they do their usual who's not and, or who's hot and who's not, which I always find quite uh, Good, but they had Leinster down as who's not hot at the moment after their defeat to Munster. They didn't score a try for the first time in the RDS, I think, since October 2019. And they're saying that this defeat will Munster to Munster in the Rainbow Cup will really sting Leo Cullen. I put it to you, Don Lennon, that no more sting Leo Cullen than a marshmallow hitting him on the side of the face. And Leinster couldn't give a toss. <laughs> Well, I'll have to give up that website. So you know, I, I couldn't understand all the hype after the game. Um, look, if Munster didn't beat that, like when you looked at the quality of the two teams that were put out, if Munster didn't win that game, I think we'd be having a totally different conversation this morning. Um, you know, I mean, for, for somebody to come out to imply that that game will have any impact whatsoever on the outcome of uh, Leinster and La Rochelle, or in, 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 the only plus that Leinster would have taken out of it as Gary Ringrose and James Ryan got a bit of game time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as a game, I thought, uh, look, it was an uneven contest. Uh, we had a bust up after three minutes, which Munster could have done within the Pro 14 final. It might have shook him into a bit of action. Uh, you had the, the Dialanda break, Conor Murray try after five minutes. And one of the two players I was really interested in watching, Dan Sheehan and Harry Byrne. Harry Byrne was gone after five minutes. So that kind of... Uh, uh, took a little bit of the interest in the game out of it for me, but physically, just Munster were too strong. So, um, I mean, I was surprised actually. I mean, when you look at it, Leinster, I think they ended up with the fifth choice out half, four choice scrum half, and that 9 10 12 connection, uh, Munster just stifled it. So, really, as a game, for me, it was a non entity, and I stopped reading anything into it about two minutes after the final whistle. Um, so that was about it for me. Yeah, I, to, I, I, I kind of smiled at the end, Birch, when um, the camera was focused on CG Stander and he made a point of hanging on to the ball for dear life. I think he's going to bring it to South Africa and hang it up as if my last game with the RDS, I left with a victory, but I wanted somebody to grab it and write, yeah, but Leinster had their fourth streak <laughs> at CJ, so it matters not a jot. <laughs> I think you, that'll be on eBay in a couple of years, yeah. <laughs> well, first, like, I actually, yeah, I, I, look, I understand how important it was for Munster, um, and they got the win, and they were dominant, to be fair, so it may be the little boost of confidence. They certainly, look, looking at body language, looking at reaction afterwards, you know, they obviously had built it up to be do or die and, and they won the game and, and they bullied Leinster. Um, uh, the, the test is, is is when Leinster have a full team out against them, can they do the same thing? But they did what they had to do. They won it. Um, yeah, I, I thought some of the reaction afterwards, like getting the match ball for me, for a fella who was so much experience, seemed to be a bit over the top. But look at as long as he, he got something out of it and he was happy with it, um, that's the most important thing. But definitely they were up for it. Leo... Yeah, look, at Leo just wanted to get through the game, I think, and Leinster. They obviously would have liked, ideally, to be able to beat Munster with that team, and that would have been a, a real sign of, of their strength. But it was pretty clear from the first 10 minutes that that wasn't going to happen, particularly with Harry Byrne going off. Leinster looked rudderless in, in terms of lost all shape. The ball was very messy. And it was difficult for Hugh O'Sullivan, um, to be fair, but he, he probably didn't have his best game either. And, uh, yeah, Leinster couldn't find any space on the pitch. So it was a difficult game for Leinster, but they would have just... Parked that quickly, and you know it's all about La Rochelle now, as it used to be for Munster back 
back when they were in semi-finals and finals, you know, the week before uh, a league game, they were always vulnerable, you know. Um, obviously, it's been a while. It's, it, it's, it's more important to them. It was more important to them last weekend than it was to Leinster. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, look, just in terms of the, the opening weekend, look, the South African sides, once they pulled out, whereas the Rainbow Cup was always just going to fade away into insignificance and whatever kind of glamour there was about it was gone when South Africa um, couldn't travel. I guess summed up by, first of all, the, the monster victory in and of itself. And then the fact that Benetton, who went to the entire Pro 14 season without winning a single match, managed to go and put 38 points, I think, on Glasgow. It just I kind of highlights the obscure nature of this competition. It's a competition, but it's not one we're going to get too excited about overall maybe until next season. Oh, definitely not. The Benetton result was pretty bizarre, all right. But um, I don't know. You, you get out of something what you put into it as well, you know. So th- there's an opportunity for some teams to to build confidence, to blood players, to be in a good place for next season. Obviously, that doesn't really apply to Leinster. And I think there's no relevance to what happened last week to, to, mm. to the La Rochelle game this weekend. And as Donald said, the only relevance is that Ringrose and James Ryan got some game time. Um, so I, I think there is potentially stuff to take out of it for Munster, just in terms of, look, they brought the attitude that we hoped they would bring a few weeks ago in the final. Now, why it's taken them six or seven games to realise... They need to bring that is another issue. But it's but irrelevant, always, isn't it? Like, there's no reason you can't shoot into a game that doesn't count. It doesn't matter. Nobody, like, like you can bring an attitude into a fight against a guy who's who's not interested, and it doesn't really matter. Like you got to bring the attitude when the attitude is actually required on the big occasions. That's the whole point, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And hopefully that was copper fastened. Like again, why it needed to be, I'm not sure, but. Um, you know, you're not a Leinster first choice team isn't going to capitulate in the face of that onslaught, but that doesn't mean you can't bring that same level of belligerence to things. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And um, the Six Nations finished up as well um, in the women's um, Six Nations Championship, Dolan, Ireland. They beat Italy, but it was a very disappointing game. You know, huge amount of errors in it, handling mistakes. I think between them, the two sides contributed nearly 60 handling errors in the game, which made for just a dour spectacle, which was a shame to sign off like that. Um, equally England and France afterwards um, was pretty dour as well so the top two sides just in terms of a kind of performance levels that they wanted to hit didn't quite hit it but in terms of where Ireland are at, at the moment um, Donald they, they beat Wales and they managed to beat Italy they finished third but I, I guess it's kind of thrown a light onto the, the structures behind the women's game and the fact that they were a standalone in this championship and forced people to kind of assess exactly where the women's game are at that's what I think a lot of people have taken from the championship yeah, that's exactly how I would have summed it up. I mean, they were given that platform on their own for a, a three-week period, um, probably unprecedented coverage in, in the media, on television, which was great. Um, maybe for some people, there was a bit of a, a sort of a, a false dawn. They, they beat Wales so comprehensively in that opening game, and they looked so <clears throat> polished and accomplished. And it was a considerable achievement from the point of view that the vast majority of the girls had only played one game in 13 months. So you got to put that into context. I think maybe people got a little bit carried away after that, given that you know anybody who has been following uh, the, the women's Six Nations would know that the French game was going to be an entirely different affair. Uh, disappointment after that, in that really um, uh, the women's side were swamped by a really good French side. You could see the differential in terms of skill levels and just uh, game management and all those type of things. Um, but look, overall, we said two weeks ago, the goal for the, the women in this championship was to finish third, uh, qualify for that uh, the new competition down the road, 
it's a build-up to more important things, which is the, the qualification now for the, the postponed World Cup in New Zealand. Um, but I think it also did serve to highlight just basic things. You mentioned handling errors. Italy at 27, Ireland at 20. As a result of that, there was no continuity whatsoever in the game. It was incredibly stop-start, and it was difficult to watch from that point of view. But I think more benefit will have been derived from the fact that it's put the focus on the structure of the game and what's happening, say, at the underage levels and how we can engage more women in the sport, how you can start them in minis, build up through the uh, provincial uh, leagues maybe, also an Ireland under-20 side as an attempt to put those together. And not least, I think it put a bit of focus on the RFU. Maybe we, we played a little bit of a role in that in our own podcast here last week by highlighting that issue, you know, in the, in the Adam Griggs interview about who is, who's in charge of development. We saw that obviously struck a chord somewhere. There was a big reaction to that. And in many ways, what happens from here on in as a consequence of that is as important as the women finishing third in the championship for me. So, uh, but we've been down this road before, I think. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what structures are there. And, you know, again, you know, the, the, the core of the debate for me seems to be, are we going down the sevens route or the 15s route? And if we're going down both, uh, do we have the resources to do that? And are they interchangeable. There was a benefit in this championship and that players like Stacey Flood, for example, uh, coming in um, at, at number 10, uh, she hasn't played a whole lot of 15s rugby. If you're going to play in that position, you need to play there regularly. You can't be going off playing in a sevens tournament and think you're going to hone your skills as a number 10 at international level. So I think they're the issues that have been thrown up over the past number of weeks and it'll be interesting to see how they are developed and taken on board by the RFU in particular in the coming months. Would you be confident, Bernard, that the RFU now you know, have an appetite to take on those issues and that they will address some of the shortfalls in the women's game over the last few years? Um, and, and regardless of how they've been put into that situation, whether they've been almost embarrassed into it or whether they've just been forced into it, given the shining spotlight of the last few weeks, do you think they will kind of grasp the nettle here and do something about the women's game productively so that they can, Ireland can compete at the top level? Yeah, I actually do. I don't. I actually think there's no choice. I just don't think there's a choice. I think this is, um, this is going to be a key requirement for all governing bodies um, to have proper systems in place and structures in place for, um, for all uh, for both genders. And, and uh, I actually I heard that they have put pressure on since last week to run off uh, an under twenties inter pro series, which would be a step forward. I mean, that's what we were given out about and. Sorry, we were highlighting the, the error or the, the lack of progression in terms of the development pathways. Um, and there was, a lot, uh, in terms of any involvement I've had in, in, in pods or media, there was no criticism of uh, the coaching staff or the current squad uh, at all. Um, no, no. no. But uh, so interestingly, Adam Griggs, that we saw at the weekend, came out and, and uh, tweeted, always listen to the experts. They'll tell you what you're doing wrong, what can't be done and why. Then go and do it. Great squad effort throughout the Six Nations. Hashtag private success. Um, I mean, private success. Hashtag, hashtag made it for me. Made it for me. Uh, and it's not private if you're going on social media. And, <laughs> massive, massive. And, massive. and Adam, Adam, Adam was the one who didn't know, the, uh, wasn't able to explain the press conference, the pathway. So that's what highlighted it all. So it wasn't anything against him or, or, or the current squad. I think the issue that we were trying to highlight was that the domestic game 
doesn't hasn't really progressed in terms of creating more more depth. So that's that's it, and it's for the best. Uh, it's for the be- best. In fact, I go one step further, Bert, and say that actually every comment that I heard was first of all, first and foremost, remarked on the levels of fitness that have yeah. improved and in the squad individually and collectively as a unit. That the skill sets that have been developed in terms of lineout structures and scrums over the last eighteen months have significantly improved. So yeah. I'd argue actually that the coaching staff and the players were on the benefit of an awful lot of goodwill and recognition for the work that they put in. But the, it was the outside structures that were yeah. finger point. Exactly, and I, and just want to clarify that that that's what we we weren't. Or I certainly wasn't. Uh, and I said the pod last week wasn't about this squad. Um, it's about actually how can we make sure that the next generation have a better chance um, in terms of having better preparation, better depth, better competition structure. So, as I said, I believe there's another 20s um, women's into pro series um, being organised um, for ASAP, which is exactly the type of thing that uh, we said was lacking. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think that there will be changes. And unfortunately, you know, there had to be some negativity or, or some criticism or some questioning, but it doesn't matter. It's about actually making sure that the, those, those things that are necessary are implemented. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I, I think, sorry, uh, yeah. but just taking up on that point, I mean, uh, if you're putting yourself out there, you're in an international squad, you're, you're putting yourself up, you've got to be open to uh, constructive analysis and criticism. Um, and as a consequence of that, I honestly believe the fact that they got that uh, additional platform will be to the benefit of the game in that uh, the media and, and pundits on television and all that type of thing have highlighted the issues that need to be addressed for the game to get on to the next level and for them to close the gap between the likes of France and England. So you can't have it both ways, you know? Um, And as a consequence of that, I think this three weeks will have served the women's game far better than had the tournament been run parallel with the, the, the standard Six Nations because it's highlighted all those issues. And if already it means that there's going to be an under 20 interprovincial series, then... Um, uh, it's it's probably the most positive thing that's come out of it. Absolutely, one hundred percent. And uh, point well made. And again, look, qualification for the World Cup will be the next, I, I guess, um, automatic barrier that that the women's squad will face, and it'll be massive for them to get there. But it's something that we're going to come back to and talk about again in terms of the women's game itself. Whereas uh, this weekend, you know, Leo Cullen against Roman O'Gara, Leinster against La Rochelle, it's a Heineken Cup semi-final. There's an awful lot of question marks around this game. I certainly don't think um, Leinster are going to have it easy, but um, it's a fascinating one. Are you looking forward to it? Yeah, definitely very much so. Um, yeah, like, I mean, I suppose... You sound very excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to sound excited. I'm, I'm still stewing on that hashtag comment, to be honest are you, with you. Yeah. Are, you doing a, are you doing an imitation of O'Gara's excitement levels there? Or is it yeah, yeah. Uh, the private pauses, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Remember when Roger used to come on game on and I asked him a question, he'd he'd go... You not see KBA written on the wall behind me here, no? (laughs) Um, uh, No, look, I would have a slight worry would Leinster be possibly um, a little lightly raced in the last few weeks of, you know, the Toulon game going by the wayside, resting players last week. Like, they're probably the one team that has the experience to not let that become an issue. Um, But, I mean, that would would be the slight concern and Obviously, no crowds there is going to neutralise the home advantage a bit. But I do think La Rochelle are a dangerous opponent now, kind of nothing to lose, the style they play. Um, but, like, all things being equal, I think Leinster are, you know, undoubtedly a little further along the road than them. 
Yeah, let's go. We'll come back to the match in a minute, um, Donald. But just Ronan O'Gara, like it's fascinating. I, I, I think the the interview after the previous round in the last 16, when he went on BT, and I think it had something like, I don't know, 10,000 likes or retweets when he was very matter-of-fact <coughs> after the game and how he approaches coaching, the styles that he implements, and he got an awful lot of positive reaction. But you know him quite well. And, like, you know, he, he has, in one sense, Donald has this unbelievable ability to be very laid back and relaxed in his demeanour. But clearly, on another level, both as a player and now as a coach, he must be seriously on top of his brief and very much involved in everything that goes on around him, both at La Rochelle previously at Lasting when he played for at Munster. And it's a fascinating, fascinating combination as a, as a person, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, you know, he does come across as this cool, calm, collected fella on these interviews. And he is, like we know, both in, as an individual and within the team context, he is a fiery, uh, a fiery individual. He's incredibly passionate. Uh, he demands massive standards. Uh, but look, he, he, I think the Crusaders has made him. Um, that experience, he, he was brought up in a certain way. He was introduced to uh, other elements of the thing going into Rassi 92. And I think even when he went in, there were certain elements around physical conditioning and nutrition and, and, and all that, where a monster in Ireland would have been ahead of where Rassi were when he came out of the game. Now, they have evolved in the four or five years since then. Um, so therefore he wasn't overly surprised like he'll always tell you from a coaching perspective really uh, you know there was times I was in there and I was shitting myself because you just don't know am I ready for this so he went through all that phase uh, the Crusaders I think has made him and again uh, I remember speaking to him at the time and he you know it, it was a daunting task to put yourself in there into a group that have the most incredibly high standards uh, the Crusaders, there's a culture built up around the Crusaders for years and years that has been there going back since the start of, of uh, Super Rugby, if you like. Where they've been incredibly successful. You're going into a room with, you know, the all-black captain, uh, Richie McCaw, the next all-black captain, and Kieran Reid, um, a, a pack of forwards. I think six of them were, were regular starters for the all-blacks. Uh, and he had different philosophies, and defence was his, his thing. He had different philosophies in the way that should be applied as opposed to what they would be used to in New Zealand. But he, you know, uh, he went through, a, you know, a difficult couple of months early on. I remember um, uh, I met uh, Scott Robinson in Japan during the World Cup and we had a, a fascinating half hour together discussing Raj. Um, but he's always open to learn. He's open minded, whereas as a player, he might have been tunnel vision and that was it. Um, the Crusaders experience, I think, has made him. Uh, now the fact that he's had another year and a half in La Rochelle uh, with John O'Gibbs going, it'll be interesting to see. I would have said he's coach, pure and simple. Keep him away from the admin stuff. Keep him away from contracts and all that. So John O'Gibbs is now going to Claremont. So he's taking another step up the, the rack. But uh, in everything he has done so far, he has proved himself. Mm -hmm. uh, I think silently... He'd be really looking forward to this game this weekend. Nothing to do with Munster and his career with Munster, but by virtue of the fact that Leinster are, well, for me, their favourites to win the Champions Cup. Um, the performance they put out against Exeter, having gone 14-0 down, not having had that group together because of the Six Nations for the previous uh, four or five months. That, to me, I thought Leinster might be vulnerable going into Exeter, and yet, despite losing Johnny Sexton, 
despite conceding two early tries, they showed a composure and an understanding of togetherness that sort of rode out that storm. So I think O'Gara is really looking forward to pitting himself against the best team in Europe. Um, albeit his side, for me, they're slightly different to the other French sides. There's a bit more balance about them. They can play the heavy game up front. They have an unbelievably massive front five. That back row of Victor Vito, uh, Aldred and Gordon, they'll be a match for the likes of Ruddock and Jack Cohn and Van der Fleer, who were outstanding as a unit at the moment. So um, I'm just interested to watch how Agara approaches this. I think uh, La Rochelle will be a little bit more structured. Now, there is a doubt about a SAOS at number 10 for them. That may affect the way that he wants to play. Um, so from a, a tactical perspective, I'm really interested to see how he puts his side together going into this game. And just from, you know, Bert, when you kind of paved the way in terms of like your march to Grenoble and stuff, and, and an awful lot of Irish coaches, well, some Irish coaches followed you over, but you kind of went over there and, and did your thing. <laughs> Obviously, Mike Prendergast came over with you to the Grenoble. Then you had the likes of Ronald O'Gara going to Racing and you know, things happened there. And I, I remember even just talking to you when you were there and you go to Paris for matches and you would meet up with, with Ronan and, and, and maybe stay one or two nights there as part of weekends away with match trips and stuff. How much do you see in him that has changed, I guess, since, since that goal you went over, maybe a little bit kind of wide-eyed about things and whatever. I'm obviously very determined to, to make it as a coach versus what you see now at La Rochelle. And equally as well, with John O'Gibbs leaving and Claremont um, and the role he's going to fulfil there and Ronald O'Gara stepping up to the next level to be this director of rugby and all things at La Rochelle. Do you think that will suit him? Yeah, I, I think um, he's just taken the right step at the right time. So I, I think probably... The first year he went when he was kind of mostly kicking coach, um, I don't think that that position uh, really inspired him or, or, or he wasn't really passionate about it. He tried to get out of that pretty quickly and then became a defence coach and then he, he looked up skill on that. Um, and, you know, obviously going to, I would agree with Donal, like he won a top 14 with Racing. Um, uh, so that was a huge part of, of being in Racing when they were probably underachievers, had a poor culture. Um, and suddenly, you know, aligned with Dan Carter coming in, they won a top 14, uh, got beaten in the European final um, when they had very, very unlucky in terms of injuries to 10 against Leinster, actually. Um, so he was part of that in Racing, the whole change of culture, becoming a, a, a more consistent team, a tighter team, uh, which is credit to him. Then he went to the Crusaders where there's already a, a very strong uh, culture team, but yes, by all accounts, he added to that in his own way with a unique insight. Um, players really enjoyed how he saw the game, so that's that's exactly what a coach should be doing. And then I, I think there's no doubt that Racing wanted him back. Um, and rather than actually go to the easy option, which is go back to Racing where he's known, where the budget is is massive, he he chose to go down to La Rochelle, which is a really good project, but. Um, you know, this La Rochelle team, I, I would say, um, is testament to, to John O'Gibbs and, and Ron O'Gara. You know, they've they've taken it from being a, a seven to eight team in, in 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 the top fourteen to being a top of the table and semi-finalists in Europe. So that's whereas if you had to come back to Racing, it wouldn't have been his. It's very difficult to say. I I I, I drove that. You know what I mean? So yeah, done that. Now John O's going back to Claremont, and he has a chance to set up his staff as as he sees fit. And, um, I, you know, given how, how reflective he is, he, you would say he knows exactly where his strengths are um, where his weaknesses are. And he'll put together a, a, a staff structure to, 
accentuate those strengths, which are at the moment seems to be very much on the field, um, you know, motivating players, giving them the environment and framework to to play. So it's 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 fascinating. I, look at um, he always was passionate about the game. He probably just didn't know he was wanted to coach, you know. Um, but I think he's grown a love of that now, and he's just built up a, a, a brilliant bit of experience. Signed on for three more years. You know, there's a lot of people obviously over the last six nations were saying, when's he coming home? When's he come home? So he's, he said, right, uh, you know, I'm happy here in La Rochelle. There's progression here. And, you know, if he could win a top 14 or, or a trophy with La Rochelle, that'd be, that'd be phenomenal. It's like Pat Lamb, a trophy with, um, with Connacht, you know, mm-hmm. oh, they have good, great players and a good budget and all that stuff. But it's still compared to the likes of Claremont, Montpellier, uh, the two, the two Paris clubs, Toulouse, you know, Toulon, they're not as well funded as them. So it would be a, a massive step uh, or a massive marker on his CV. And um, yeah, he just seems to be, seems to really found his way of doing things and an environment where he has more power. Listen to Bert. Thing, sorry, just yeah. on that point, sorry, just before you leave it. The one thing that people seem to be obsessed about is this thing about O'Gara coming back to Munster. And yeah. I, I can tell you right from the outset, O'Gara never... He, had, he didn't have any inkling, like Munster wasn't on his radar whatsoever. Like, I'm sure there's a part of him down the road, yeah, would like to end up there. But he, it, it just, it, it's not on his radar to any degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I suppose, look, at the easy narrative is to say this dream team, Paul O'Connell, Ron O'Gara together um, in, in Munster. Uh, it, it might happen someday, but it's just not uh, anything that he was interested in rushing into um i know for a fact his family love la rochelle you're talking about paris or la rochelle what a beautiful city i mean what a disaster we can't be there this weekend he's living across the bridge in ilderon in that beautiful area i mean um who'd blame him i mean for for wanting to stay there for another three years absolutely and look i just went listen to birds there and talk about um i guess the the personnel that he's put in place at la rochelle and the role that, that Ronald O'Gara has kind of taken on himself. Declan Kidney kind of springs to mind for me. I mean, you know, this man-manager, that kind of a role, if you like. Do you, do you feel that maybe O'Gara is kind of modelling himself on the kind of a coach, if you like, that Declan Kidney was? Is that, or is that a bit of a leap? I think it's a leap to this point because he's been a coach and there's a director of rugby in there with him who you'd imagine is doing a lot of that recruitment and retention in, in Jano. So... You know, is is that what he may become now when he when he goes up the, the stairs? Yeah, possibly. Um, I think Will Skelton is another one that maybe wasn't mentioned. That's a, been a massive signing as well, <laughs> literally and figuratively. But um, he's kind of um, you know he's he was absolutely crucial when when Saris did a number on Leinster in the final a few years ago. He's been down. You know he. I suppose if there's one way that Leinster have come a cropper, it's when they've been really taken on up front. Um, by teams with huge power and like there's an argument that Rochelle La Rochelle had that there so there's definitely the potential for for them to cause some problems so look it's just it's just going to be really interesting games like a clash of styles as well a little bit and look the Raj thing definitely adds um, a bit of a subplot and I think Donald's bang on in that you know, it's nothing to do with his history with Leinster as a player. It's to do with the fact that he has an opportunity as a coach to go out and put a plan in place that takes down the top team in Europe. Um, so why wouldn't you be enthused by that? His plan, Wes, is going to now naturally revolve around Ross Byrne. 
because Johnny Sexton is out, right? It's a massive game for Ross Byrne. Um, I, I guess the biggest positive in, in Byrne's favour is that he's, he's with Leinster, where he's more comfortable than perhaps if this was an Irish setup where just there would be so much focus on him because of his track record with Ireland. And I wonder how Ross Byrne is going to acquit himself this weekend and if it's something that Larachelle can target. I don't know how you would, essentially. But what's your feeling on, on Ross Byrne having to start now because Exxon's out? He did brilliantly the last day against Exeter, in fairness to him. He came on quite early doors. So, um, look, he's played in quite a lot of big games. I suppose he had not his best day, maybe, in, in the, the semi-final last year, but... I wouldn't be that worried about him. Um, I think I think Sexton is a loss just because of his aura, really, at that level. But um, I suppose I'd be as concerned about um, you know away from this individual game. It's 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 probably a little worrying that that Johnny's missing such a protracted period of time now with another head injury, you know. But um, yeah. but for this weekend, I I, th- I think Byrne is an adequate replacement. I think very few would replace Sexton like for like. But I think, look, he's been there long enough. He's played in big games. I'm sure he'll want to make amends for the last semi-final he played in. I'd be fairly confident in him. You know what, it, Donald, it's, it's, a, it's a big game for Ross Byrne. And I, I say this in the context that obviously he's going to semi-final. So, you know, I'm kind of stating the obvious there. But equally, you know, it might be his last chance with Leinster if, if things don't go right here. Because you've got Harry Byrne coming through. Obviously, there's another couple of young guys next season. This is an opportunity for Ross Byrne to say, look, I know I've had my criticism. I know at times for Ireland, I've, uh, you know, I haven't perhaps performed as people would have liked me to, but he has to get it right this weekend. It's a massive, massive game for Leinster and for him. Yeah, it is. But I think, look, um, a lot of the time with a player, it comes back to where you feel, it sounds simple, where you feel loved and appreciated. I think Rossburn, Leinster over the years have done a brilliant job with Rossburn. I think Stuart Lancaster and Leo Cullen have massive faith in him. So therefore, as a starting point, that, that's a great position to be in. Um, I thought he did incredibly well when he came off the, the bench against Exeter because, uh, as we uh, as I said earlier, Leinster were 14 points down after 10 or 12 minutes. They had begun to drag themselves back into that game at that point. But uh, Sexton going off was a huge blow for Leinster in the context that he had a really good Six Nations with Ireland. Um, but um, if anything, Ross Byrne added you know, his own little stamp on the game. He was involved, I think, in the in the... The, the opening try that Leinster got within a couple of minutes of coming on. Um, so I wouldn't be, obviously, as you've said, Johnny Sexton is a loss to any team, but I think in the context uh, of, of that Leinster backline, Ross Byrne will fit in. I think, more importantly, the players around him, be it um, Luke McGrath, who probably started at, at nine, Robbie Henshaw at 12, uh, Gary Ringrose at 13. I think the three of them, are very comfortable playing with Rossburn. So therefore, I don't see it as a massive issue, albeit Johnny Sexton, because of the character that he is, will be a loss. Um, I think in some respects, given the issues that Lara Scheller having around their number 10s with injury doubts around West and Pleason, you know, it might be some relief to them to see that Johnny Sexton isn't starting. But um, uh, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be overly concerned about Rossburn. I'd, I'd back him to do well this weekend. Okay, and just on the, on the pack then as well, Birch, um, I, I want to talk about the Lions. There's a couple of other issues as well. And we've on, um, in, in terms of the Leinster pack and what you expect to start, James Ryan obviously getting some game time last weekend. Is he an automatic selection this weekend? The back row will be interesting as well um, for Leo Cullen and Stuart Lancaster and who they um, select. Have you any idea about... Yeah, well, look, I'd be shocked if they didn't, the back row wasn't Ruda. 
Conan and Van der Fleer. Yeah. Um, and then for me, it's a toss up between. Like you may be tempted to go for Devon and James Ryan, but I, I, I'd probably go for. I might even go for Fardy beside James Ryan. I think this is, this is a game for for hard experience. Um, uh, for not taking a backward step. A hundred percent agree, Wes. I think, you know, when John Owen and and Raj look at, at Leinster, you know, if they can put a squeeze on them up front, and they have a, a huge. Huge front five, very, very powerful, uh, very powerful pack in, in, in general. And um, and even though they do play a high tempo offloading game a lot in the in the in the top fourteen, um, I've I've been able to see them vary the, vary that and uh, just rely on on playing um, playing a lot through the forward. So from a Lancer point of view, would do you keep do you keep Brian Baird on the bench to bring on for impact um, and start with a, a kind of a, a warrior like Fardy or you just get him off from the start. I, I don't know. Uh, like, look at the front front row: Healy, Keller, Furlong will come in. Um, so you're bringing six into the forwards straight away from who weren't involved um, last weekend, um, and you know they're all internationals. Uh, but yeah, I I I I personally think Fardy has a role to play this weekend. Um, I know he's retiring, but um, he's still a good operator, and they need to make sure they don't take a backward step against against this La Rochelle pack. Okay, all right. Um, Don, just on the Lions, um, move on. It should be a cracking game this weekend. And obviously, it's uh, live on RT uh, radio as well, I think, is it? With yourself and Michael, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're on okay. Sunday afternoon. Looking Good forward to it. Good stuff. Um, in terms of the Lions, Don, an agreement has been reached with um, Premiership Rugby now about the English players in the build-up to the, the Tour of South Africa itself, which obviously involves the game against Japan and Edinburgh and the releasing of players who might be involved in that Premiership final. It's going to cost 45,000 um, great British pounds per player. And it uh, does seem like that this is an awful lot of haggling over essentially, you know, trying to flog as much money as possible out of the Lions. Premiership Rugby have said this will never happen again. So this is a, a, a last lifetime deal that these players will be released on this kind of a basis. And from now on, something else wants to happen. The whole thing is a complete mess. It's a pretty ugly mess as well, Donald. And um, it just leaves everyone with a bit of sour taste in their mouth, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Look, um, I, I've said it for years. Uh, the four home unions run the Lions. And yet every four years, we send them off with one hand tied behind their backs, playing against, in many cases, the world champions who've been together for two or three years. And you flag them all into a bowl and hopefully you get something out of it by the time the first test uh, arrives. Um, funny enough, I did an article uh, on, uh, on it in the examiner this morning, but I went up to the attic and there's my manager's report from 2001. Wow. And I looked at the recommendations because Warren Gatland has been given out about this for eight or 10 years. I went into the section recommendations and things I spoke about 20 years ago now are still an issue in terms of player release, in terms of adequate preparation time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's an absolute mess. Um, like the Lions are set up to fail. The fact that they've been successful in the last three tours is a testament to the players and the management because um, um, every single obstacle is put in your way. Um, so here you have, uh, and you know, it, it comes back to money in a lot of cases, uh, this, this mess with the premiership where even clubs absolutely understand, of course, if you're in the playoffs or you're in the final, of course you're not going to go off into a camp with the Lions. But all the other players from other clubs whose season in effect is over, the fact you have to haggle to get those players available, 
to come into camp is it's just it's 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 incredible really. Um, and the fact that for the third or fourth tour in a row, the Premiership final in England is on the Saturday before, and the Lions head off on the tour on the Monday morning. It just beggars belief. I mean. There is a story, I remember speaking to Johnny Sexton about this, the opening game, the same thing happened to New Zealand four years ago. And they played the first game against a provincial 15 up in the North Island. If you remember, Warren Gatlin's son was the out half for that kind of provincial barbarians team. Bryn, yeah. Five, Bryn, yeah. Five, there was about five or six Lions players going to the match, fell asleep on the bus going to the match. If you remember, they were lucky to win the game against a kind of a, there were mitre 10 players, you know, uh, yeah. third tier in New Zealand. Um, like, if you had lost that opening game on the tour, all of a sudden it puts massive pressure on you. But that is the type of organisation that has been put around the Lions. And yet they play such a massive role in, you know, they're, they're you know, 40, 50,000 people travel to watch them. Um, they've become the financial saviours once every 12 years of New Zealand, Australia, or South Africa, they are the kind of, they give them the financial boost that keeps them going for another few years. And yet they're treated like this. I mean, I feel very passionate about it because um, uh, I think, you know, they get no support from within the group who were supposed to be running the Lions. And uh, that for me is shambolic. Add in, we're at a a scenario now, we're eight days away from the Lions squad being announced, okay? We know the eight games that they're playing, seven in South Africa. There's a suggestion that the provincial games they're playing, that those teams, so in other words, if you're the Natal Sharks, you might be flown up to Johannesburg to play against the Lions. You're not playing them in Durban. That's the suggestion. But as of now, we still don't know what the itinerary is. We still don't know where they're playing. Like, it's, it's, it's a I mess. Then, Donald, I then throw in the fact that, you know, come the first test, South Africa, as a side, will not have played together for 20 months. Like, that is just unthinkable. This whole Lions tour has been a disaster. Yeah, but yeah. but is it not, like, I certainly wouldn't be surprised if, it's, if it never goes ahead. Like, I, I, haven't, I haven't as hooked in as I normally would be because, I don't know, some, subconsciously I just feel, you know, uh, three weeks out there'll be an announcement and it'll be pulled. You know, it's just... It's, 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 as Don said, no itinerary yet. I mean, it must be absolutely, you know, um, uh, soul destroying for likes of Gatlin and stuff, trying to make plans and, and trying to plan prep and, and organize things with with just such uncertainty. Absolutely. And, and then you've got, you know, the fact that I'll just selection marks off a squad and all that kind of stuff. That's why I guess, you know, and, and, and even on the podcast here as well, we've been more talking about the organizational problems around it and than anything else. Throwing the fact there won't be a crowd there, Wes, more than likely. So, you know, this, this thing about Lions, travelling fans, all that atmosphere is gone. The players are going to have to quarantine to be in this bubble. It's just not going to be anything like a Lions tour that we know of. So, look, we'll wait and see if it goes ahead. I, I'd be with Birch here. I'm, I'm not convinced at all that it will actually happen. It seems, it seems like organisers of, of right across the board, and we talked about it with the, the Rainbow Cup earlier, but there's people are still in the mode of trying to uh, reschedule or accommodate things that were, were shortened or abbreviated due to COVID earlier in the season. And that's understandable financially, but I, I wonder, is there a tipping point at some stage where you need to kind of go, well, hopefully the world is going to be a much different and, and better and more amenable place to sport and attendance and things like that by what would be the start of next season in September. And 
you know, is there an argument that maybe you kind of cut your losses at a certain point and be as well prepared in terms of players physically and in terms of organisation and administration around tournaments to get really back to 100% running for next season rather than this... Like, I mean, players are going to go on this. Like, when are players meant to have a couple of weeks off? When are they meant to do their pre-season? I, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, I wouldn't be that disappointed if it was cancelled in one way, to be honest with you. I think the, the hype around Lions tours in terms of the media coverage the last few years has become completely over the top as well. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be terribly upset if it was cancelled in this particular instance. But that's that's the logical answer, Wes. I think the issue here is this is all to do with contractual obligations. That is why the Lions said, after having tried to, you know, a suggestion that it might be hosted in Australia, a suggestion that it might be hosted in the UK, when those opportunities <clears throat> couldn't go ahead, then the Lions said, fine, we signed a contract, we have to travel, you have to host us. So it's all to do with trying to fulfil the contractual obligations. And um, if, if it's going to be cancelled, let South Africa cancel it. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I firmly believe that this is going to... The obvious solution for this, and I know you're talking about World Cups the following year, was postpone the tour until next June. And I can see then why, if you wanted, Ireland were to tour New Zealand, England were to tour Australia, flip them, let them go down this summer. I mean, they're, you know, we've seen games that are taking place in New Zealand and Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, but look, or even, I mean, even like, Donald, if you, if you went to New Zealand next summer... Obviously, you might be on a bit of a hiding to nothing, but if you went there minus seven or eight Lions, like we're talking about opportunities to build squads. I mean, how brilliant an opportunity would it be for notional second-choice players to get to play against the All Blacks in the year leading up to a World Cup? Yeah. Don't rush yeah, in I'm with sure. the answers, lads. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure do. Yeah. Well, the All Blacks... The All Blacks, I think, the prospect of, of hosting Ireland B for three tests would fill them with a massive joy. It wouldn't be that B, though. It would be maybe seven or eight down, but, you know, yeah. it would be your slope yeah, yeah. getting a run on the first team. Just finally, lads, I uh, want to end on a, a bit of a, a I guess, a, a, an upbeat story here. Um, I'm cognizant of the fact that I haven't, I'm just not throwing this at you in terms of facts and figures, but just as a general point here. So the 2021 Harvey Norman Super Rugby Australia season have just released uh, record-breaking figures turning in on television for their games across the last uh, few months. So free-to-air television this year, and they're reporting a 16.4% surge in player registrations from the same time in 2019, based on the fact that the Rugby Championship has been free-to-air. Television figures average up on average of 144% across the board since the competition has gone free-to-air on Australia corresponding with increased um, attendances at matches as well, attendances at games and stadiums are up right across the board and 16.4% surge in players registering to play the game because it's available on free-to-air television. And Donald, you know, if ever was needed as an example of what can happen if you keep this game or rugby union on free-to-air with as many eyes as possible, that it translates to a success across the board. And I thought it was a brilliant story and a brilliant article to read. Yeah, sorry, I wasn't aware of that. I hadn't seen it. And and as we know, Rugby Union fights a huge battle in Australia because they have so many other professional sports. They're in a fight with Rugby League, Aussie rules, cricket, soccer. So it's an ongoing battle uh, for bums on seats and to attract viewership. But that's brilliant. I hope the the Six Nations, uh, as we know, the broadcasting rights for the Six Nations are being discussed as we speak. 
Um, and I hope that the, you know, those terrestrial figures, the fact that they are available free to wear, will have an influence in the outcome there. Because when CVC came on board, we all automatically assumed that that was it. Behind the paywall, it's BT Sport or it's Sky or it's Amazon or whoever. And, uh, you know, that was the end of the Six Nations as we knew it. Hopefully, the timing of that figures, again, highlights the fact that you've got to keep the sport in front of the punter. You've got to um, get kids engaged and involved in it. So I'm, I'm delighted to hear that. Okay. Right, lads. Look, we'll leave it there. Let's just, allow you, you, just quickly, uh, fair play, uh, Connacht uh, winning up in, in Ravenhill, in fairness, we should just mention them. Oh, sorry, absolutely, yeah. They've had a very tough time. Their home form has been really poor, and I know they won away, but um, the impact, the quality of Caelan Blade, um, Abraham Papalihi off the bench. I know Ulster had withdrawn some of their players, obviously, to get ready for uh, for their European Cup, our, our European Challenge Cup semi-final, but big win for Connacht, difficult season, and uh, hopefully it, it, it gives them a kickstart to finish strong. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I thought it was a fantastic game. Um, you know, I mean, nip and talk, right... It, Right there to be one in the end, and uh, you know, I suppose we, we 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 spoke briefly about the the new law changes that were being brought into the railway the railway cup, as I call it, the rainbow cup. Um, <laughs> the bottom line is uh, the More railway cup. The railway cup about, at this stage, Donald. Exactly, but uh, yeah. do you know what amazes me in the end? You know, it was all the talk about. And Birch, I know you were up there and you were working yeah. at the game, but you know the talk about the captain's pick, and we we had mentioned this last week. I mean, is the definition of a good captain now when you know how to challenge the referee? But you know what struck me, and it did work in Connacht's favour in the end. But basically, what it's doing, it's highlighting a failure of the officials to get a call right in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Embarrassing them. Yeah. <laughs> so that was going to be a turnover. The the instance where Marvin gets. Lose the ball. It was going to be a, a scrum to uh, a scrum to Ulster. Ulster. And it's actually a penalty to Connacht. It just shows you, you know. Um, and if there wasn't a captain's challenge, we, that game would have been just. We never even would have seen it back probably on the replay. It's yeah. Uh, but but, but, but really this, this is potential for to, to to embarrass the referees as well. And I know it's something that you have been very vocal about this season. The standard of refereeing, refereeing particularly in the Pro 14, has not been um, what it should be. And you know, as you say, with a captain's challenge now, it does have the potential to embarrass the officials even further. Yeah. And maybe if that's the kick in the, you know what, that they need to pick they up the a fairly good job of that themselves at times, Hugh, to be fair about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, as captain, though, you're in time to go up to the referee and say, well, you made a buzz at that. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, right into the microphone. You grab yeah. with a jersey. Exactly. What do you think of that, <laughs> Nigel? <laughs> and I, I, I'll just I'll just declare for you, Hugh, that we obviously have no vested interest in talking about free to air rugby on this podcast. Just you know, no, down the Sky Sports uh, Super League route here inadvertently, you know. Yeah, and apologies to Connacht fans that I put in the fact that uh, we're hoping to get free to air rugby back in RT ahead of the fact that they beat Ulster last weekend. So yeah, maybe my agenda needs sorting out for next week, lads. And um, pleasure as always. We'll discuss the Leinster Lara Show game next weekend. We do have a Lions squad as well that's uh, coming up in about eight days' time, as Donald mentioned, if in fact it doesn't go ahead. So plenty to talk about next week in the podcast. Uh, to Donald, to Wes, and to Bernard, thank you for your time. We'll talk to you next week. 